Good morning. Uh, last week, Pastor Ben finished our series in the Gospel of John, looking at the truly, truly statements of Jesus. And next week, uh, unless something has changed, he will be preaching through, I mean not through, he'll be preaching from the book of Isaiah leading up into Christmas. Uh, so this morning, I am preaching a one-off sermon that I have entitled, Ride the Wave. Ride the Wave. And the reason for the title, as you might have gathered, uh, is from a story I heard recently about uh, ducks. <laughs> uh, it's actually not so much a story as it is a study. Uh, you, like me, have probably seen ducks swimming in a row. Uh, And you, like me, have probably never really wondered why. Uh, Until last week, I had never wondered why. I just just assumed it kind of makes sense. They're babies and they swim in a row. I had never really given it any thought. But of course, a group of scientists decided to ask why. And of course, because they were scientists, the answer is math. And the math is being heralded uh, because of its implications for shipping. Uh, And basically the the math uh, can be adapted or might be adapted and then applied to create more fuel efficient ships. Uh, Now, the math, admittedly, uh, is beyond me, which is why I keep just saying the math. Right. Uh, If you happen to know the ins and outs of fluid mechanics, then maybe this makes sense to you. Maybe you could guess. Maybe you could explain it to me later. I promise you don't have to. Uh, but the simplest explanation I can give also happens to be the only explanation I could understand. Um, but it's this. The waves created by the mother duck swimming in front can be caught and ridden in a way that the ducklings behind are essentially propelled forward with very little effort on their own part. As a matter of fact, somehow the the ducklings, as they ride behind their mother, are able to pass on that propelling effect so that even the tenth little duckling all the way back is still being propelled forward by the wave. So rather than exerting tons and tons of effort and energy to keep up with their much larger and much more able-bodied mother, the little ducklings can ride the wave. And this is my call to us to you all and myself this morning as we head into the end of the year with all its busyness and stresses and pressure not to mention our everyday anxieties and troubles uh, there is a, a way to live there is a place to be a person to follow that will propel you forward A place where your efforts and your energies are not exhausted. A place where you can find rest. So this morning, my encouragement is that you follow Jesus Christ and ride the wave. Before we go any further, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Sunday mornings. Thank you for the time you've given to us that you have set aside for us, that we set aside um, to gather and worship. Uh, worship through song, worship through prayer, worship through the, the preaching and reading of scripture. Frankly, God, that we just worship by showing up, by saying that you are worth it, that you are worth rolling out of bed and getting dressed and coming to this place. God, thank you for, again, this privilege of being part of this church to stand here and open your word. Father, I pray that 
you would help us just attend to you and what you have to say, that we would learn to think uh, more biblically, not to say we know answers or we know things, but that as we learn to think more biblically, as we learn to see the world uh, through the Bible's eye, so to speak, God, that we would become more like you, become more like the people you would have us to be, become more like your son. Um, and in all of these things, God, that we would feel the wave, the momentum that you give to us, and, and that in this life and in this world we would find rest. Father, coming off of Thanksgiving and heading into Christmas, this can be a challenging time of year uh, for many different reasons. And I know that in a church even this size, there are so many burdens that we bring. Um, Father, I pray that now uh, we don't forget them, we don't set them aside and just focus on you Uh, but that we bring our burdens to you knowing that you love us and you care for us and that you give us rest. Um, Father, thank you for your love and your kindness and your goodness. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray all these things in his name. Amen. So this morning, we are going to begin with the beginning, uh, the book of Genesis. Now, the first several chapters of Genesis lay the groundwork for understanding just about everything that comes afterward. And not just in the book of Genesis, but in your Bible. I believe this morning that we have a rest problem. That's why I'm preaching on rest. And I think that the fact that we can't rest, that we struggle to rest, demonstrates that we are not following Christ closely enough. That we are not following him well enough to ride the wave. And again, my hope this morning is not to guilt you into such a thing, but to help you see why that might be and how we might fix it. So we're going to investigate that problem through the book of Genesis. So if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 2, we're going to look at Genesis 2, verse 15, 16, and 17, and it will be on the screen behind us as well, or behind me. It's not behind you. Um, Actually, yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You probably know the story. God has created everything. Uh, Well, well, almost everything at this point, because Eve has not yet been created. But God commands Adam to work and keep the, the garden. And he definitely commands him. He says, you definitely should not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He can eat anything else in the entire garden, but this tree in the center is strictly off limits. Uh, I like to note that my my Bible offers about the tree at this point in the story because the tree can be a bit of a hang up. And so it says this, my study notes say the tree of the knowledge of good and evil seems to come from nowhere, but it plays an important role. For one thing, it simply reminds the man that any authority he holds over the world, his dominion, his kingship is not ultimate. There are limits to his authority, which reminds him that there is a high king who reigns above even him. That is why the consequence for eating from that tree is so severe. 
To do so is not simply a little mistake or a violation of some arbitrary, insignificant rule. It's to break the limits the high king himself has set, throwing off his authority and renouncing his rule, declaring independence from him and beginning a rebellion against his crown. So far from being a little bite out of an apple, this is a act of cosmic treason. Taking from the tree is rebellion, pure and simple. So what happens next? Well, again, you probably know the story. God creates Eve from man. And then in Genesis 3, we read this, in verse, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the serpent, who is later identified with Satan, deceives the woman. The serpent leads Eve to believe that God is holding out on her. He convinces her that God's prohibition against this fruit is not because she will die, but because she'll become like God. And that would make God jealous. And all the while as this is going on, Adam, who was originally instructed with this command, right? He's standing idly by. (laughs) Whoops. So Eve is deceived, Adam too. And rather than holding fast to God's word and trusting in the boundaries that God has set, they set out to create their own boundaries, They trust their own eyes and their own desires. And so in an instant, they went from a world whose meaning was found in God to a world whose meaning was up for grabs for anyone with the initiative and the power to change it. The fall of man, this great sin, is closer than you think. Maybe not in time or space, but in spirit, in our hearts. Because here and now... Right now, we are free, or at least we think we are, to make our own meanings. We can be whoever we want to be and believe whatever we want to believe and do whatever we want to do. And nobody can tell us otherwise. Nobody can tell us we're wrong because there's no such thing as right and wrong. That is the sin of Eden. That is the sin of the fall. And when we forfeit reality, when we forfeit reality as God has defined it, and we instead allow anyone and everyone to make it after their own image, we are participating in the same sin as Adam and Eve. We have been deceived from believing that God's designs are best, and we are left as finite creatures fulfilling the job of an infinite God. And this goes beyond discussions of sexuality and marriage and gender, although it's certainly relevant there. See, this freedom gets to the very heart of how we think about ourselves. Because if it is up to me, if it is up to me to make my own meaning in the world, then it's also up to me to make my life 
meaningful. I have to make my life matter somehow. And so this brings us to another story in the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 11, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 9, we find the story of the Tower of Babel. Maybe a little less well known uh, than Eden and the fall, but you've probably heard of it. Uh, Following the flood with Noah and the ark and, you know, the, the world has repopulated with a people who still share one language. And a group of these people decides to come together, build a great city with a tower into the heavens to make a name for themselves. God comes down. He sees the city and the tower, confuses their languages, scatters them over and scatters them over the face of the earth as punishment. This story, Babel, is often set up as an example of what happens when you live without God. This is what happens when you want to make a name for yourself. You might succeed for a time. You might get that tower into the sky, but eventually God will come down. God will oppose you and God will cast you down, humbling you. So I want to stop for a moment and just consider what the Bible has done in its first 11 chapters. Again, we didn't look at it all, but two pretty big stories here in these first 11 chapters. It tells us that making your own meaning is bad. Defining things for yourself, setting your own boundaries is bad. And it tells us that making names for ourselves is also bad. And it warns us that we can use God and religion for selfish means. Right? But, but literally, Eden is the sin. Like when you think of sin, you think of the fall. And the Tower of Babel, while, again, less familiar, contains worlds of meaning and symbolism when it comes to evil and sin and wickedness in the Bible. And yet these two things, which the Bible clearly sets forth as very bad, are taken as nearly axiomatic values of our modern world. It's almost taken for granted that we should make our own meanings and that we should make names for ourselves. And it's these two things that I think are behind so much of our unrest. Because again, if meaning comes from myself, then the value of my life comes from myself. And if I ever quit quit working to make my life valuable, then my life will stop being valuable. If I am not working constantly to give my life meaning and it doesn't come from anywhere else, my life will stop having meaning. Or at least it'll feel that way. We'll feel that. So if that's the case and these things are true and the world is telling us this is true, how can I, how can we ever rest? Our rest stops being restful. Instead, it's filled with anxiety. Our rest has to be productive. We have to be productive in our rest. We have to optimize our rest. We rest in order to get more things done. The story of the Bible, and thus the story of God, and the story of the universe, sees these as problems to be fixed, not as opportunities to be had. It's not good that we make our own meanings, and it's not good that we make names for ourselves, that we strive, that we feel that we have to make our lives matter. 
These are the consequences of humanity turning away from God. But the plan of restoration begins in Genesis 12 with Abram, who turns back to God in surrender. So if you look at at Genesis 12, starting verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Notice how this story counteracts the problems, the sins that we've just discussed from Genesis 1 through 11, or specifically Genesis 3 and 11. First, Abram submits himself to God. When God told Adam not to eat from the tree, he gave him very clear instructions. He said, do not eat this fruit. But when God told Abraham to go, it was much less clear. He just says, go to the land I will show you. Abram doesn't even know where he's going. He just knows that God said go, and so he's going. See, we often want all the answers before we obey. But when we do that... We're really only trusting our own minds by waiting until it seems like a good idea to us. But Abram isn't trusting God because he thinks God had a good idea. Abram is trusting God because he's God. Second uh, to notice is that that is God who is going to make Abram's name great. Abram is not responsible for his own reputation anymore. Unlike the people of Babel who work to make names for themselves, God will work for Abram and exalt him and lift him up. So it's not a sin to have a great reputation. That is not the takeaway from Babel, that we must not have great reputations. It's not even necessarily bad to desire a great reputation. There are plenty of places in scripture that tell you to be thought well of by outsiders and to have a good name and to be, well... Of good repute. See, the problem lies in wanting a great reputation apart from God's purposes and designs. Following Jesus doesn't always lead to honor. But if honor is the thing you desire most in this life, if a reputation is the thing that you want, then you may very well fudge on the following part, and the following part is the most important. So in, this early, in the earliest stages of Genesis, setting up the rest of the Bible and setting up, I, I hope, how we view the world, we have the fall and we have the Tower of Babel. And they are bad paradigms. They are paradigms, they are patterns or examples of what we should not do. And Abram is set forth as the good paradigm. Now admittedly, talk of rest is not in the story of Abram. It's not obvious for Abram how these things are going to lead to rest for him. But for us, I think it's clear, and I hope I've made it clear. Because if we let God set the boundaries of our lives, abiding by what God declares as right and wrong, and we let God concern himself with making our names great, and making our lives valuable, and making our lives uh, (laughs) valuable, vindicated, then we can rest from the work of making ourselves and our own lives. If we hand that job over to God, if we surrender that job to God, 
we can find rest. But we have to submit ourselves, surrender ourselves to the Lord like Abram. Once again, if you are on your own, if you are your own, which is a very common message in our world today, it is a theme, if not a just, again, taken for granted part of every movie, every commercial, every most anything that you will see, right? If you are your own, then you alone can define yourself. No one else can tell you who you are or what you should be. And if you alone can define yourself, then even your rest, again, must be productive. Even your rest must accomplish something. And the only way to find true rest is by belonging to another. Entrusting something or someone to consider your life meaningful and valuable. Of course, you can entrust yourself to many people. And many people and things will give your life value and and give your life meaning. Some are better and some are worse. But only one is best. The Bible teaches that rest must be found in God. And that's because only God can provide us with security. Maybe finding rest in God sounds to you like sleeping on a bed of nails or hugging a porcupine. If rest can only be found in God, and God is a hateful, backwards, power-hungry, oppressive, bloodthirsty, no-good, no-fun, patriarchal bully, then I'd rather not rest. Thank you very much. Now, of course, in our context here, a church, it's unlikely that any one of us would resonate too strongly with that description. Even if we can imagine some people in our lives who might. Even if some of those descriptions hit us a little closer than others. And you still will wonder whether or not you can really trust God. Can you really entrust yourself to God? It's possible that your idea of God is similar to Adam and Eve's. You're doubtful whether he is as good or as powerful as he says. Can you really go... When, not where, but when, he says go. And can you go where, he says go? How can you be sure that God doesn't have it out for you? How can you be sure that God will really give you rest? You need to know, we need to know what God is like. So we're going to turn now to Matthew 11, verse 27. Um, Reading Matthew eleven twenty seven and then stay there because we'll look at the next couple of verses. It says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Jesus will show you. Jesus will reveal God to you. And here you don't have to look very far. The very next verse says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There could be many reasons that you labor and are heavy laden today. And Jesus provides rest for each one of them. But the two that I am most concerned with this morning are the two that we saw in the book of Genesis. 
They provide a unique challenge because they are actually encouraged in our culture. As a matter of fact, we might even we might not even realize their problems because they are so taken for granted. We labor because we set our own boundaries. We labor because having set our own boundaries, we must make our lives matter. Matthew 11:28 and through 30 lends itself really well to the first problem. Adam and Eve doubted the goodness of God, and so they took the forbidden fruit. But here in these, in these verses, in this passage, Jesus assures us of his goodness by telling us he is gentle and lowly, and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. How can this be? What does this mean? Right? Well, his yoke is easy and his burden light because his law is a law of love. The commandment is to love God and love your neighbor. Every act ought to flow from a fountain of love in your heart. And while this is difficult, if not just downright impossible for any one of us to pull off, who can deny that it's good? But beyond that, the law is also a gift of love from God to us. It is a gift of love from God to us. Because while the law of God runs contrary to our sinful natures, and because of that, it can feel like a burden... In truth, God's commands, God's instructions, his law, align us with God, make us more like him and the creation he has made. So rather than weighing us down, God's instructions, his rules, his laws, lift us up and make us more like him. And so the laws of God that we receive even now are intended for our benefit. It is for our benefit that we love our neighbor as ourselves. By loving God and keeping his commandments, we can ride the wave and let God's love for us propel us forward. But this isn't the only way Jesus propels us forward and gives us rest. His law is not only a law of love, but Jesus Christ gives us the strength to accomplish what he commands through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says this. It won't be on the screen, but it's a well-known verse. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, not only are there no laws against such things, but the implication is that these are fulfillments of God's commands. These traits for living faithfully, given, empowered by the Spirit of God himself. And so by walking in the Spirit, we can ride the wave. Rather than venturing out and trying to discover what is good for ourselves, what is right for ourselves putting forth all the effort to figure those things out and make sense of a very messy world, we can accept the testimony of Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us, who is gentle and lowly, whose yoke is easy and his burden light. We don't need to be smart enough to decide what's right and wrong. We simply need to submit to and surrender to the King of Kings. But perhaps more importantly, at least this morning, Jesus addresses our Tower of Babel problem. I suspect that this is where much of our anxiety really comes from. Making ourselves matter. As a matter of fact, 
Isn't this what the vast majority of social media amounts to? Making ourselves matter. But we don't need to build towers to make names for ourselves. We don't need to worry about our reputations and work with that as our goal. We can rest from our activity because we are no longer defined by what we do, but by what Jesus Christ has done. And yes, I know you probably know this. And yes, I know you hear it every week that you're here. Praise God. But I also know that you spend the rest of your week, or you probably spend the rest of your week, hearing that message of Babel. Telling you to work for your own glory, make a name for yourself, and not rest in God. To not rest in Christ's work. And so you, I, we all need to be reminded to rest. And the point of this rest isn't wellness or health or personal growth. I'm not speaking this morning as a doctor, but as a pastor. The point of your rest is an exercise of faith in the Lord. It is an exercise of faith in the care of the Lord. Will you stop from your striving for status in this world and surrender to God? Do you have faith enough to let go and let God take care of you? Do you believe it when Jesus says, it is finished? You do not need to make a name for yourself if you come to Jesus and take his yoke upon you. The book of Revelation refers to the Lamb's book of life. And in the Lamb's book of life are the names of all those who are being saved by Jesus. No Tower of Babel, no work of your hands, no accomplishment or achievement, nothing in this life could ever compare to the greatness of your name being found in that book. And through faith in Christ, it is, or it can be. If you are tired, let Jesus make your name great. If you are tired, let Jesus set your bounds and limits and tell you and show you how and where to flourish. If you are tired, Follow Jesus and ride the wave. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to rest in you, God. Help us to truly rest in you. Help us to know that um, rest is not a laziness. Rest is not just an inactivity or a stopping, but it's an act of faith. That we trust in you to keep the world spinning while we are not at work. God, help us to trust in you for our identities, for our status, for our worth. That it's not in the things we buy or the things we do or, uh, any of, or even what other people think of us, Father, but that ultimately our status, our value, our worth, our meaning comes from you and our relationship to you. Thank you, God, that our relationship relationship to you is restored in Jesus Christ. Thank you that while we might be insignificant here and while not very many people might know our names, thank you, Father, that our names are in the Lamb's book of life and there is nothing greater than that. God, give us a confidence in our identity there 
Help us to rest. Help us again to see the world as you see the world. To know the things that add stress to our lives. Know the things that add pressure to us. And be able to think and fight them off biblically. Knowing knowing your truth and your design. Father, I just pray again as we head into this busy time of year. Uh, where there's pressure to go here and there, to please family, to buy gifts, to uh, whatever else might be going on. Um, Lord, that it's not bad to work hard. It's good, in fact, to work very hard. It's good, in fact, to love our neighbors, God. But help us to love our neighbors for their own sake and not for ours. And that these wouldn't be all our towers of Babel that we're building, trying to do something great. But again, that you, we would just rest in you. And that by resting in you, even our activity, even our work can become rest rather than our rest becoming work. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.